After a one-year hiatus, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Uh, We left off roughly a year ago to look at the book of Galatians together, and then we finished uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to return today to the Gospel of Luke, and Lord willing, continue on to the end. Uh, Chapter 12 ended with Jesus confronting his listeners about their failure to interpret the times in which they were living. He called them hypocrites. Hypocrites because they were, they were great at making weather forecasts, predicting the upcoming weather, but terrible at recognizing the times surrounding the coming and ministry of Christ. And uh, so Jesus warns them of the danger of, of failing to settle accounts with God by using a parable at the end of chapter 12. And he's basically saying, if you're, if, you're going to, if you're going to settle a lawsuit, there is distinct advantage to settling the case before it goes to court. And Jesus is urging people to make sure they settle with God before they stand God's judgment. Because the reality is, Jesus says that all of us are heading to the inevitable moment when we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And Luke tells us in the opening words of chapter 13 that this story, there were some present at that very time. And so this is our context for our Before we read the first and ask for God's help, let's pray together. Of we thank you for the joy of being together with brothers and sisters in Christ in your presence. And we also thank you for uh, the blessing of discovering our true selves as we worship you. We pray now for the blessing to be of uh, the blessing of God to be upon the ministry of your word may may it be like a powerful sword that cuts deep into our hearts show us the power of your word today to to teach us to convict us and correct us and train us as you show us the way of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Let's hear God's word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable 
a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. There's a lot of talk today about uh, celebrity preachers. Preachers who are uh, well-known and whose ministry extends beyond a local congregation. If you wanted to meet America's first celebrity preacher... I think you would need to go back to the 18th century to meet a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was uh, famous in both England and here in the States. He, I believe, made the dangerous trek across the Atlantic on seven seven different occasions to preach up and down the eastern coast. And uh, if Whitfield was in town or near town, people made every effort to go and hear Whitfield preach. He was known as a straight-talk gospel preacher. Um, He had a remarkable voice. He could preach to crowds of 20,000-plus without any amplification. And he was known for uh, his manner of speaking. There was an actor during that time by the name of David Garrick who was quite wealthy and said, you know, I would give away everything I have just to be able to say the word Mesopotamia the way that George Whitfield says Mesopotamia. So you imagine a man with this kind of status and popularity, young children, young boys, trying to do their best Whitfield impression. In fact, we have such a story. We have a story of a young English boy who belonged to a wealthy English upper-class family. And this upper-class family in England was having a dinner party. They had people from uh, the, the neighborhood come over, and in the midst of this party, one of the family members brought this young boy into the room and said, go on, give us your George Whitfield. We've heard you've got it nailed. So this young boy stood up in the midst of this room and because he had heard Whitfield preach on this text, he stood up and he said, unless ye repent, y'all will likewise perish. And the party was over. (laughs) The mood instantly changed. People packed up and headed home, humbled by the words that this young boy spoke in their presence. And my guess is the response to that young boy's words is very similar to the response that the Lord Jesus received when he spoke these words as they are recorded here in Luke chapter 13. As we look at this text together, I I want to look at it in four parts. First of all, I want to look at the question Jesus asks. 
Second, the answer Jesus gives. Third, the application Jesus makes. Incidentally, to make, make it very clear to us, Jesus asks the question twice, he gives the answer twice, and he makes the application twice. And then to really bring it home to our hearts, the fourth thing I want us to see is the parable that Jesus speaks. So let's begin in the first place with the question Jesus asks. He asks it first in, in verse 2. Paraphrasing it, do, do you think that these Galileans who were slaughtered while they were worshiping, do you think those Galileans are any worse than other Galileans? And then Jesus asks the same question regarding a different situation, but making the same point, this time talking about the, tire, uh, the tower in Siloam. Uh, was it a construction accident, or did this tower just unexpected, unexpectedly collapse and crush 18 people? We don't know, but Jesus asks the question in regard to that event. Do you think that they were worse offenders than anyone else who lived in Jerusalem. The first event was a terrible atrocity, and the second event was an apparent tragic accident. And Jesus is asking the question, do you think that these victims, if we want to use that word here, do you think that they were any worse sinners than the rest of you? Jesus First raised the question, though, when people brought up this, this uh, incident of the Galileans being slaughtered. Apparently, they were, they were worshiping, participating in the sacrifices, and some of Pilate's own soldiers came and slaughtered them. I mean, the language here is graphic. Their, their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices being offered. We have no record of this incident outside of the Bible here. But this certainly fits the bill for Pontius Pilate. This is the same Pilate who would participate in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And massacres marked this man's administration. And so some people bring up this tragic atrocity with Jesus. We're not sure exactly why they bring it up. Perhaps just to know what he makes of it. And judging from how Jesus responds though... It's clear that Jesus understands that there is an underlying question in the minds of his audience as they bring up this incident. And the question is this. Jesus, why did this happen to those people? Is there something that they did in order to deserve this? In other words, is this terrible event, whether it be slaughtered by soldiers or crushed by a tower, is it their fault? That's the issue Jesus brings out into the open with his question. Did this happen to them because they are in some way greater sinners than the rest of us? You know, the question, it's actually, it's, it's really not an uncommon question because when bad things happen, there is always somebody who says it must be their fault. You know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and really bad things happen to really bad people, the thinking goes. And so when bad things happen, people who have this 
faulty theology of sin and suffering, they try to trace a direct line from suffering to sin in that person's life. And the suffering being an act of divine retribution for that particular sin. Now, there are examples of this bad theology of sin and suffering in in Scripture. Remember, uh, Remember Job's friend, Eliaphaz, who suggested that divine punishment is always the cause of suffering. He basically says, Job, you reap what you sow. And in Job chapter 4, verse verse 8, he tells him, if you plow iniquity and you sow trouble, you will reap the same. And so he says, Job, just take a look at your life then. You've lost everything. You've lost your, your sons and daughters when this house came crashing down upon all of them and killed them all at once. And look at your own body covered in, in boils, Job. The only explanation is that your suffering is because there must be some great sin in your life. This is your fault, Eliaphaz was saying to Job. And Job wrestles with that and, and eventually responds and he says, he says no, that, that is not the explanation for what I am experiencing and what I am going through. And Job is right. God is not punishing Job for his sins here. God is not after Job. The explanation lies elsewhere in what God intends to do in and through a faithful man in a fallen world to display his wisdom and his power and his strength to preserve his people. Or think about the man born blind in John chapter 9. The disciples see this man and their question is, okay, Jesus, whose fault is it? It Was this man born blind because of his parents' sin or because of some sin that he committed? And Jesus says, it's got nothing to do with this man's sin or his parents' sin. Once again, the explanation lies elsewhere in the gracious uh, renewing work of God that his work might be displayed in and through this man in a fallen world. Jesus isn't saying that this man or his parents never sinned in their lives. That's not the point. But this man's personal suffering was not directly connected to sins he committed. But you see, people want, want to explain, people wanted to explain in Jesus' day, uh, suffering with what people call direct divine retribution. And Jesus says that's not right. Now, of course, the Bible recognizes that some suffering is the direct consequence of personal sins that people commit. Actions have consequences. And and there are sins that have consequences for us, but also people connected to us. It doesn't take a prophet to recognize that some things happen as a result of a pattern of life, a pattern of behavior that preceded it. A pattern of pornography will ruin your life and the lives of those you know. Drugs will wreck your body. Adopting our culture's view of casual sex 
What will that lead to? STDs, feelings of emptiness and uselessness as you give yourself to person after person? The Bible recognizes that certain sins and patterns of behavior have consequences. And the Bible recognizes at certain times God does directly intervene and bring judgment for specific sins. Just look at your Bible and read about Nadab or Abihu or in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. But, and here's where we need to be careful, the Bible also recognizes that there is not always a direct connection between suffering and individual sin. The Galileans and the 18 crushed by the tower did not die because they were any more guilty than anyone else. That's what Jesus is saying here. So it's wrong for us then to assume that there's always a direct connection between personal sin and suffering in our lives and in the lives of others. And so the question Jesus is dealing with is a relevant one. It's, it's a practical one for people who think that suffering they experience must be directly related to some failure of sin on their part. You know, we're, we're the Galileans who were slaughtered worse sinners than us. We're the people crushed at the Tower of Siloam, greater offenders than the rest of us. Well, secondly, let's look closely at Jesus' answer. If the question is clear, I think Jesus' answer is, is all the more clear. Did these tragedies happen to these people because they were worse than the rest? Verse 3, no. Verse 5, no. Jesus isn't denying that we all deserve judgment for our own personal sin. He's not denying that we're all going to face judgment. He was just teaching those very things. But Jesus is rejecting the theory that says all suffering is the direct result of personal sin. He rejects the idea that when bad things happen to people, it must be their fault. And now Jesus is making an even more radical point, which we'll get to in just a second. But first, you see, he's clearing up this bad thinking about, about sin and suffering. The fact that bad things have been done to you and that bad things have happened to you in your life does not mean that you are a worse sinner than anyone else. But you see, the radical point Jesus is making is that every person, and the comprehensive significance of this is brought out in Jesus' use of the word all in verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, every person will likewise perish unless they repent. So Jesus is saying, do not think that because these people's lives were suddenly and tragically taken, that they were somehow greater offenders than anyone else. What happened to them is a warning to the living to repent. Now before we look at the application Jesus makes in more detail, let me, let me pause for a moment and draw out, I think, two implications of this text and what Jesus is saying as he deals with this issue of sin and suffering. First, in light of what Jesus teaches here, we should avoid being a bad counselor like Eliaphaz, whose bad theology 
uh, of sin and suffering said to someone like Job, oh, you're suffering, must be your fault. My friends, that kind of counsel can crush people who are suffering not because of anything they have done, but because of things that have been done to them or because of circumstances that are completely outside of their control. But Christians do this all the time in their judgment of of others. You're suffering. It's got to be your fault. There's got to be an explanation for this in your life. There's got to be some sin that needs to be ferreted out. Of course, sometimes it is our fault. But let's not be like Eliaphaz and make judgments on the basis of externals alone and think that the only cause of suffering in people's lives is their sin. Second, I think another lesson we can learn from what Jesus is saying here is, if I can put it this way, we should avoid being Mr. or Mrs. Navel Gazer. What I mean by that is we should avoid being Eliaphaz to our own selves. Here's how Mr. Navel Gazer reasons. From this suffering in my life, I deduce that there must be some sin in my life that's bringing it on. God is punishing me. And if the suffering is severe, then I know that I must be a greater sinner than the rest. So then what Mr. Navel or Mrs. Navelgazer does is turn in upon themselves until they find the sin that they think explains the suffering and they become morbidly introspective. But you see, Jesus is helping us understand that while you should not overlook your own life, that you may suffer and there isn't a direct connection to your personal sin that's brought it on. Again, don't don't misunderstand. We ought to keep a close watch on ourselves. We ought to practice healthy biblical self-examination. But if we always conclude based on our hard circumstances that God is after us. If any time we suffer, our only explanation is that there must be some hidden sin in my life and we become morbidly introspective and we think God is treating us as an enemy. Dear friends, you have lost sight of the way our Heavenly Father deals with his children. Instead, we need to recognize that our Father intends to sanctify to us our deepest distress. Yes, God uses suffering in the lives of his children. Yes, God disciplines and chastises those whom he loves, but that is a world apart from God punishing you because he is after you. And I suspect that many Christians sometimes struggle with this mentality because the only explanation they have in their minds for suffering in their lives is it must be because of something I'm doing and God is after me. And so as we try to make sense of our own suffering, all I'm I'm encouraging us to do, dear friends, is let's make sure that we are thinking as children of God, preserved and kept by grace, not as sons and daughters of disobedience who remain under the wrath and judgment of God. 
Okay, let's, let's come back then to the application Jesus makes. So, so the question, do you think they're worse sinners? Do you think they're greater offenders than the rest of us? No. Okay, Jesus, what do you want us to learn from this then? Answer, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Jesus puts our attention where where it needs to be. Because here, here are these people thinking, hey, let's, let's, have, this, this, let's have this debate with, with Jesus and talk to him about tragedy and sin and the problem of pain and evil in the world. Let's, let's have a conversation about this issue. And Jesus is willing to go there. But notice Jesus is committed to keeping the main thing the main thing. You know, people love to have these abstract, impersonal debates about tragedy and the problem of evil. And note what Jesus does, because it's what we need to do with with love and gentleness and compassion. Jesus says, why don't we spend more time talking about the sin in your life and what it deserves? You see, for us, the problem is... Why, why do bad things happen to decent people? But that's not Jesus' problem. The issue is, why does anything good happen at all to any single human being? Because we deserve, by nature, we deserve to perish and to be condemned. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, isn't it striking? Jesus doesn't even argue for the sinfulness, the universality of sinfulness, the the seriousness of sinfulness, or what sin deserves. He just assumes and asserts it because it's so self-evident in the mind of the Lord Jesus what sin deserves. The, The blood of these Galileans mingled with their sacrifices. These 18 crushed it. Stylome and Jesus says, my friend, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. (laughs) Here's one of those sayings of Jesus that is just so countercultural. It cuts against the grain because it challenges the way that we naturally think about ourselves. The way we naturally think about ourselves is, well, we're generally speaking good and decent people, and, and God will accept me so long as I live a good and decent life. But for Jesus, the fact is that we are all sinners. Some sin is more private. Some sin is more public. Some sin is more powerful in its destruction. But all sin is an offense against a thrice holy, infinitely perfect and pure God. And all sin merits perishing and destruction. And so Jesus is saying, if if you're ever going to think about yourself rightly before God, then what you need to understand is that what each of you deserves as sinners is perishing and judgment. And the only way to escape it is to turn and trust in Christ. Paul, how does Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, we were once children of wrath. By nature, that's who we are as 
fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And maybe somebody will say, well, yeah, that's, that's just pessimistic Paul. I prefer the apostle of love, uh, John. And so you go to a, a famous verse like John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But what does John go on to say? He goes on to say that whoever does not believe on the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. Like a dark storm cloud ready to break. And it's the same apostle of love who, who, uh, who tells us in, in the book of Revelation about the, the generals and the the presidents and the leaders of this earth who are running to the mountains and calling for them to fall down upon them so they don't come under the wrath of the Lamb. And so wherever you go in your your New Testament, this is the unified message. And these are the words of the very same Jesus who set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Why was he so committed to going to Jerusalem? He was was going to Jerusalem to die upon a cross in order to receive everything our sin deserves in his own body on the tree. He was going to make a way of escape from the perishing that we all deserve. And so you have to hear Jesus' words in, in this context. These are the words of loving warning that unless you repent, you will perish. So what's the point of Jesus' application? As he's talking about these two incidents, I think Jesus wants us to ask ourselves the question, have I repented? And, and, and secondarily, if I have, am I repenting? Because repentance isn't something you just do as you enter in the gateway of the Christian life. Repentance is the daily discipline of the Christian believer. And that's what uh, Jesus teaches us as he calls us to a life of repentance. I want you to see here that repentance is illustrated a couple chapters later in chapter 15. When the son, I can't wait to get to this passage, the famous story of the prodigal son. The son returns home from the far country to his father and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am not worthy to be called one of your sons. Let me serve you as a hired servant. Notice what he does there. He, he confesses his sin. Openly acknowledges it. Honestly acknowledges it. He is contrite. He is sorry. Not just because his sin led him into an uncomfortable situation. He is sorry because of the sins that he has committed. Were committed against such a good and gracious father. And he changed. He turned around and he headed back to his father, eager to serve and obey. He confessed, he was contrite, he changed, he repented. Dear friends, have you done that? And if so, are you doing that? Jesus is saying uh, this to these people 
Like, if you're, if you're ever going to understand how the gospel works, think about it this way. You have to begin in the right place. You can't get to the right destination if you start in the wrong place. And Jesus is saying, if you want to start in the right place, here's what you need to understand. That by nature, you are a child of wrath. You are, you are under the condemnation of God. And the only thing you deserve from the hand of God is perishing and destruction. That's what Jesus is saying here. And the only thing suspending that perishing is the patience and kindness of God. And that's why we need to go to this fourth part of the text, to this parable, the parable of Jesus, because it speaks to the kindness and patience of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. It's the parable of the barren fig tree. And there's this man with a fig tree planted in the middle of a vineyard. It's, uh, it's fertile soil. It's tended to. It's cared for. And yet this owner has come to it three years in a row now and has found nothing on the tree. And he's had enough. And he said, that's it. It's time to cut it down. And the vine dresser says to the owner, give it one more chance. One more year. Of course, this parable has significance in the context of the life of Christ with regard to the people of Israel, but my friends, it applies to us as well. Are you a tree planted in God's vineyard, being nourished by God's word with the word of the gospel in your ears and the whole counsel of God upon your laps? Have you enjoyed the fellowship of God's people and have you experienced blessing upon blessing upon blessing? When God comes to see you at the end of the year, what does he see? A barren fig tree or a tree bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, one of the questions that came to my mind earlier this morning while I was sitting in the pew, why, why are we here today? I mean, why doesn't God just act according to strict justice and deal with us now? Why are you still alive is the question. You know, many answers could be given in response to that, but I think the answer that we need to hear today is because God wants to display his grace and his kindness to us in order that we may repent. My friends, at least for today, at least for this moment, because tomorrow isn't guaranteed, the door is open to turn and to trust in Christ. To turn back from the path that leads to perishing and to cast yourself upon Christ, the Savior of God's providing. But you know, I think for some of us, if we've never repented, this is how some of us think. We think, you know, it's, it's just too hard. When we think about all that is required 
of us in repentance, when we think about all that it will mean for us, when we think about all that it will require of us in confessing our sins openly and honestly before God and against those we have sinned against, we, we end up saying it's just too hard and it would be easier for me to just keep living the way I've been living. It's kind of like the rich young ruler. Jesus says to him, sell all of your possessions and come and follow me. And he hangs his head because he thinks, Jesus, that can't be what you ask of me in order for me to follow you. And sadly and tragically, he turns his back on Jesus and he continues on the path to perishing. But Jesus loves us too much, though, dear friends, to not speak to us in, in our danger. As we think, you know, it's far, far easier for me to just shut off my mind today from thinking about the future and just keep on living the way I've been living. The reality is, dear friends, repentance is hard. Ask someone who is repenting. And they will tell you, you know what? Sometimes it feels like death. But the reality is, and this is what Jesus is showing us, it's actually the only way to live. Because the alternative to not repenting is eternal perishing. Well, friends, may... The Holy Spirit who empowered the words of the Lord Jesus here and in a special way, I think, empowered the words of that little boy as he impersonated George Whitfield. May he empower these words in our lives, in our hearts today, unless you repent, you will perish. And these are not the words of Jared Havener. These are not the words of a little boy imitating a celebrity preacher. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior there is. And so may the kindness and the goodness and the grace and the patience of God lead us all to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kindness of Christ. We expect to see his kindness in so many ways in the Gospels, to see his kindness to the weak and needy, his kindness and compassion to the downtrodden and the outcasts. But here we discover his kindness in a way that we did not expect. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus is willing to say hard things to us because of how much he loves us and because of how much he wants us to have life and life abundantly in him. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that by your grace and spirit that you would bring those of us who have wandered away and those who have been in the far country all of our lives Bring us back to the Father by way of repentance as we trust in you.
make these words a pathway to joy and abundant fruit in our lives. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen.